Uh, this evening we're turning to John chapter 7 and 8. Now, before you all panic, we're not doing two whole chapters tonight, right? It's a couple of verses before and a couple of verses after. Uh, just, I just want to set the scene to what I think is one of the most poignant uh, scenes in all of Christ's ministry. And, but just to see how powerful it is, I want to just take you back to the previous day so you can just piece it all together and see what is happening. Remember what this series is all about, okay? We only started this morning, but I just want to kind of keep reiterating what this is all about so we can just stay focused on that. Um, rather than an in-depth study of the life of Jesus, which is always worth the time and effort, rather what I want to do is spend the first few weeks of 2019 with a very clear message. There is hope in Jesus. There is hope in Jesus. Uh, some people I know, and they feel like they have lost hope. They feel like their situation is hopeless, and they're struggling. Jeff, like, I don't know what you're, you're going to say, but I can tell you this. Where I'm at the minute, it's not going to work. Whatever you've got to say, it's not going to be good enough for it to work on me, because my situation is too bad. Things are too bad, or that person is too stubborn, or too twisted, or too angry at me. It's never going to work. And you just believe, hand on heart, that things are not going to get better. What do you do in those kind of situations? Where do you find hope in those hopeless times? And so what I want to do is to show you little glimpses of the life of Jesus, little snapshots, and the people that he interacted with and the things that he said to them and the things that he did for them. And I, and I want to say to you is, look carefully and see yourself in these situations and realize that not only is there a hope that should make us feel confident that things are going to look up for us, but also that there is a thrill and an excitement that comes with it because God is at work in our lives, even in these difficult times. And the processes may be hard. The processes, if I'm being honest, are usually hard because life is not easy. Life is hard. But ultimately, it is worth it. And that's exciting because if you're really, really struggling, think how great it will be that if God is taking you down this path, how worth it it is going to be. That if this amount of pain, this amount of suffering, this amount of difficulty and stress is going to be worth the reward, think of the reward. But until we get to that point, we put our hope in God. Now, so often the world will say, look, oh, there goes those Christians again um, who have this kind of blind optimism. They put their head in their sand and just ignore reality. Or they might say, look, you know, you might um, complain about everyone taking drugs, but religion is the worst drug of them all. It's this feel-good drug that you take to escape reality. You know what? I think in some cases, I think they might have a point for some people. There are people who claim to be Christians, and they haven't got a hope that is rooted in anything. They just sing some wee songs and just have this blind optimism that ah, it's got to work out. Why? Ah, it's just got to. But why? Because it has to. You know, but they, they never can really give you any substance. What is that hope in God really rooted in? And in this series, I want to show you that because of who our Savior is, we can root 
and anchor our hope in him. This is not blind optimism. But the thrill of knowing him, even if we don't know the road that he is leading us down. So the question that is being asked tonight is, well, what kind of a savior is Jesus? And the answer is, he's one who will speak up for us. This morning, we looked at how he is the savior who shows up for us. And that's why we can have hope, because he shows up whenever we need him to. Not like um, some sort of genie, but he is there for us. We can depend on him. He is reliable. This, this evening, I want to say he is also a saver who speaks up. So in, in John 7, uh, when you kind of get halfway down in, there's a bit of an argy-bargy happening. Now, that's not the Bible's words. That's my words, okay? I don't think the Bible actually uses the phrase argy-bargy. But basically what's happening is Jesus has said something completely and totally inflammatory which was fine because he's Jesus. He was right, okay? He was accurate. He was truthful in what he was saying. Uh, The problem was that for the most part, everyone didn't agree with him. And so let's jump into verse 37 of John 7. Hopefully you can read that. On the last day of the feast, that's the feast of tabernacles, um, the great day, um, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's talking about Holy Spirit coming after he would be crucified. Uh, verse 40, then he said, uh, when they heard these words, some of the people says, this really is the prophet. Uh, the prophet was a phrase used in Mosaic um, prophecy. Others said, no, 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 this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ that come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They said, oh, no, no, Jesus is from the wrong place. The, the Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem. This guy's from Galilee. Um, where was Jesus born? Oh, okay, Christmas was like two weeks ago. Hopefully you know that, all right, yeah. He's from Bethlehem. So these guys have got their facts wrong. So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one really had the guts to lay hands on him. Now what we have here is is something that happens every time you have a real honest and frank discussion about who Jesus is. Whenever people have differences of opinion. Okay, once people really start to try and ask the question, he divides opinion. All right, you want to fall out with somebody, you talk about Brexit or you talk about religion. All right, and that's pretty much what happens here. All right, Christ is a divisive character because people always have strong opinions about who he is, and they usually have different opinions about who he is. People have always asked what kind of a savior he is. For some, he's a moral savior, he's like an example to follow. He taught some nice things, did some nice things. If you can try and be like him, you'll not go far wrong, but you know, he wasn't magic. But Jesus another time says, Now I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That's divisive. Because everybody wants to get there. Everyone who I've met says, Yeah, I, I, I want to go to heaven. Just a lot of people want to do it on their own terms. So this debate is kicking up. And typically when big issues get 
discussed among people with strong different opinions who passionately disagree, it starts to get heated. So a familiar voice speaks up down in verse 15. Nicodemus, um, who had gone to him before, who had gone to Jesus before, that was back in John chapter 3, and who was one of them, who was one of these religious leaders, said to the religious leaders, does our Lord judge a man without first giving a hearing and learning what he does? In other words, guys, don't we believe in a fair trial? You know, you want to arrest him? Do we not need to figure out what he, if he's done anything wrong first? Is there a case to answer here? And they replied to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, maybe that doesn't make an awful lot of sense to you because here he's talking about the justice system. And they're like, uh, are you from Galilee too? Uh, what has that got to do with anything that Nicodemus said? It's got nothing to do with what Nicodemus said. It's a personal attack. Um, that's what a personal attack is something that stupid people do whenever they can't think of a smart reply. Okay? That's what happens. It's why children on the playground call each other names because they don't have the mental capacity to actually have a reasonable discussion. You stole that. Well, you're ugly. You know, it's that, it's that kind of a, a thing. And, and it happens. They start calling people names. It's like, you know, you said something that I don't really like. I can't think of a reply, so I'm going to say something that's going to get you riled. I can't say anything to win this argument, so I'm going to hurt you. And so they come back at something to try and rile you up. That's the idea. Are you from Galilee too? Because the people in Jerusalem in Judea hated the Galileans. They thought they were a bunch of hillbillies. And we looked at some of the politics up there this morning. It was messy. The people in the south had nothing, wanted nothing to do with the people up from Galilee. And we still do this now today. All right, I grew up in Balamina, so if someone's being a wee bit tight with their money, I might say, huh, you're from Balamina as well. Because we do it. You know, and we, we say, you know, oh, well, you're from there, so therefore you're like this. Or maybe if someone's a wee bit posh, depending on where you are, you might say, oh, Hollywood's got a wee bit bigger. You're certainly living down this end now. Or maybe if they try and pass off having a bank or a dress when really they live in Conlake. I'm going to get emails from people from Conlake now. But anyway, it's that kind of idea. You know, we, we kind of use geography to define people or to sort of make assumptions about who they are. I think they call it racial profiling now, but you know, you know what it's like. The Galileans were supposed to be unsophisticated from the backwoods, uneducated. They didn't understand the nuances of, of the, the religion of, of Moses' law. They didn't have all those subtleties. They're just Galileans. Just let them run about up there in the hills. And notice what they said. Are you also from Galilee? No prophets come from Galilee. Actually... Yeah, there were. Jonah came from Galilee. <clears throat> uh, and so they're idiots twice, okay? Because number one, as I said, Jesus wasn't from Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. But also then because there were people from Galilee. Jonah um, tells us that, uh, I think it's in First and Second King, Jonah 1 and uh, 2 Kings 14, tells us that Jonah was from gath Hefer. Right, which is a town five miles from Nazareth, up in Galilee. Uh, even some would believe that the prophet Nahum was also from Galilee, that the original name of the city of Capernaum was um, called Elkosh, 
Nahum, apparently, was an Elkoshite, and they believe that the name Elkosh at Galilee was later changed to Capernaum. Capernaum, by the way, Capernaum, Capernaum, means town of Nahum. So that's, that's where that link's coming from. So, <laughs> there's no prophet came from Galilee. Uh, actually, you're wrong. But this is what's happening. They're, they're, they're starting to bite back. They can't win the argument logically, and so they're coming at people with, with attacks and insults. And this is what you'll notice when people start making big sweeping claims that they're usually panicking. They're usually trying to make the fight personal. Guys, don't get sucked in. Don't get sucked in. See, when you start seeing that somebody's making a fight personal, just back away. Don't get sucked into that. Don't get sucked into that fight. You don't, you're above that. Don't get sucked into that level. Because it means that they can't nash rationally beat you. It means you're winning. <laughs> Boy, out while you're winning. Don't get sucked into that level. They don't challenge the point that Nicodemus is actually making about their justice system. He's right. So they make fun of him. And so what I'm saying is there's this tension that's in the air. There's this frustration because this happened in a public setting. This is up at the temple. People are watching. People are listening in. And there's this thing going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. The fight, the, the beef is starting to get public now. And this is where we move in, into chapter 8. And it's strange because even I know you never start a sentence with the word but. It just shows you that the chapters and verses aren't part of the original manuscripts. They were added in as reference points afterwards. And the end of verse, chapter 7 says, they went each to their own house. Chapter 8 starts, but, terrible grammar, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives, uh, this is the view from the top of the Mount of Olives. Uh, as you can see, there's the big dome up there. Here's the Temple Mount here. Here's the steps or that people would have went up into the Temple Mount and out and came down that way, and that was part of the system there. That's the Temple Mount. That's all that you can see from uh, the top of the Mount of Olives. It played a big part in the life of Jesus. Um, and it's right there, right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So it wasn't a big walk for him. Um, it's maybe about three miles away. So what, Jesus was maybe 32 at the time. Young, healthy man walking a couple of miles. What, half an hour, 40 miles walk. And so you can see the top of Jerusalem. You can see the, the, this valley down here is the Kidron Valley that maybe you've heard about in, in some of the Bible texts. And if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you can see the Garden of Gethsemane as well. Um, there is it coming from the other way. So if you imagine that last photo was taken from just up there, but I'm way too short to start pointing at things here too closely, but it's up there. And this, it was something that was built afterwards. The Garden of Gethsemane is usually this kind of walled area here, but all of it is the Mount of Olives. Jesus prayed on the Mount of Olives. He was betrayed on the Mount of Olives. He ascended on the Mount of Olives. And there's another thing. See when he comes back? He's coming to the Mount of Olives. So it's a pretty important place. Zechariah tells us that his, when his feet touch, the Mount of Olives will split into two sections, creating a large valley. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everybody went to their own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why did he go to the Mount of Olives? Where did he go in the Mount of Olives? Was he just camping out under the stars? Probably not. We're not told. But I'm going to suggest to you that he went to the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. 
they lived in Bethany, which was where? On the Mount of Olives. It was just on the base of the Mount of Olives. And so it's a little village just there. And so that's just showing you there. Um, just where it is. This is to show you the humility of Christ. What's the question? What kind of a saviour is Jesus? Everybody was going to their own homes, but Jesus didn't have even a place to put his head. So he said to her, would be follower. Listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to go where I'm going to go, foxes have holes, birds have in the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to put his head, do you still want to follow me? Are you sure you really want to come on this journey with me? Because I've got nothing material to offer you. You want to follow me? You've got to have to have faith. You've got to have your hope because you're not going to do this for the money. I don't have apartments. I don't have lots of property. I don't have a nice house overlooking the city of Jerusalem. I'm camping out or I'm staying with friends. So people go home, but Jesus doesn't. He didn't have a home. He was born in a manger, in a feeding trough, in a stable. He never owned his own home. When he died, he wasn't put in a family tomb. He had to borrow one, but it was okay because he was only needing it for the weekend. And he rose from the dead. All of this is showing you, okay, well, so many people are are trying to talk about what kind of a savior he is, or, 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 you know, is he the savior? Is he a prophet? Is he he Moses? Is he Elijah? Who is he? But the Bible isn't really interested in telling us that, but rather, okay, he is the savior, and here's the kind of savior that he is. He is the humble king of kings. And a lot of people can't grasp that. But early in the morning, he, he, get, he comes again into the temple. And all the people come to him. All right? He caused a big stir the night before. So people are interested in what he has to say. And he sat down and he taught them. I just love this idea. Excuse me. I love this idea. Making time at the start of the, of the day to hear what Jesus has to say to you. I hope you do that. I hope you meet with him regularly. I know for some mornings don't work as well as evenings, or maybe you're better doing it once the kids get out to school or or different things. But you make time for God. You make time for him to speak to you. You open his word, you pray, you talk, and you learn from him. And here's just a beautiful example of of people getting the chance to come away in the morning and listen to Jesus. Now, he's teaching in a different spot from where he was the day before when they were fighting. We know from verse 25, he's in the court of the woman. So he's in an inner part of the temple. If you think of uh, the temple as, as a series of outer and then inner courts. You kind of a general area where anyone was really kind of free to come and you had markets and you had stalls. You had then had an inner court, uh, court of women, where, where there, there was the treasury and different things there. And only the Jewish people were allowed in there. And then you had the men's court outside, uh, just inside again. And then you had the priest's only area. And so he's, he's moved from the outermost courts to one of the more inner ones, one of the busiest courts, the court of the woman, because that was where the money was being held. And so by him being there, by him deliberately moving in he, and attracting a crowd, he was going to grab the attention of the leadership that he had irked the night before. And so the scribes, uh, oh, sorry, the scribes and the Pharisees bought, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? 
This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against them. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. See, to the Jewish leaders, there, were, there was three big sins, all right? Um, I don't know if you do this, but maybe sometimes I'm guilty of having done this when I was growing up. We kind of categorize sin. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lie, which is bad, but a white lie, which is okay. You know, and we kind of have these different categories of sin, and there's shades within the categories. And they kind of, but for the Jews, murder, um, idolatry, and adultery, kind of were the, the kind of the three worst ones you could do. Um, murder, obviously, idolatry, obviously, but adultery was especially abhorrent to them for, for obvious reasons as well. Adultery breaks up a relationship. It can destroy a marriage, but with that, it can also destroy a home. All right, and we know that in our own church, there are people who have had gone through those horrible, horrible divorces, and the impact that it has on them, the impact that it has on the the, the uh, children or, or the the children's grandparents, it, it has this horrible, horrible thing. But what happens is then, whenever you have more and more adultery, when you have more and more divorce, the very fabric of a culture starts to be threaded away and decimated and destroyed by it um, just because divorce is common I don't think we should ever underestimate just how horrific it can be for people who are going through we should always, always, always have a very tender heart for people who are going through such a terrible thing just because it happens a lot doesn't mean it's easy we need to remember that uh, and so the Jewish people, they, they took adultery seriously, so much so that God commanded capital punishment in the Old Testament, in, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, death by stoning. Have to watch, have to be careful here. I don't want to say they got stoned because that means something different now. But uh, <laughs> so, so it's death by stoning, okay? Death by stoning. And in fact, the, the Mishnah, which is um, a commentary of the oral traditions of Israel, um, said that the Mishnah stipulated strangulation, death by strangulation. Um, which is pretty crazy. I don't know why. I haven't done any research into this, but my thinking is um, someone comes after my wife, I'm going to strangle him. <laughs> you, know, so I'm gonna, you know, it's just, you know, somebody wants to go, it's a frustration. It's a, I don't know. I kind of maybe sort of got that. Um, but for every reason, that was part of it anyway. It was a big deal. So they don't really care about the law. Not really. What they want to do is they want to trap Jesus. Now, how is this a trap? And this is all stemming from the night before. Okay? No matter how Jesus answers this question, they think they can get him. They can destroy his ministry. They can destroy the impact that he's making. Because if he says, yeah, the law says she ought to be killed by stoning, you should kill her. Well, Jesus is going to lose his reputation of being the friend of sinners. He had gathered a reputation and a following of, of common everyday people around him who were benefited from that. You know, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, Come and I will stone you. So he has his reputation that he loves people, he's a friend of sinners. But if he says, No, don't stone her, then he's guilty of breaking the Jewish law. So if, and on top of that, the, if he says to, to kill her and keep the Jewish law, he's going to break Roman law because the Romans outlawed capital punishment. The Jews weren't allowed to kill people. Uh, it was only the Romans who had the authority to do that. So he's kind of caught in this thing. 
right, Jesus, this is what the law says. Are you going to break Jewish law? Are you going to break Roman law? Are you going to lose your people? What, what are you going to do? They've got him trapped. So Jesus just ignores them. And he starts writing on the ground. Now, here, here's what's wrong with some of their issues. Number one, even though the law says this, it's not a law that they've enforced. Probably, according to historical documents, it probably was about a thousand years before, since they'd actually stoned anyone under this law. In real life practice, it was one of those things that was sort of given out, but they never did it. And as I mentioned, the Romans took away that capital punishment, so they couldn't do it. This was not something that was regularly happening. People weren't getting stoned on a daily basis. This was not something that was happening. Number two, and the most obvious problem, is the law said that you stone both the adulterer and the adulteress. Where's the dude? Because they say, look, we caught this woman in the very act. Okay, so we don't need to paint the picture there. But if someone is caught in the very act, it means you caught both of them in the act. So why do they only grab her? Because they're not interested in justice, they're interested in trapping Jesus. So they're breaking the law by only fulfilling half of it and letting him go free and just bringing her. So there's lots going on. And as they continued to ask him, and they're kind of, they're, they're nagging, and they're sort of going, well, 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 what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do, Jesus? You need an answer. You need answers, Jesus. And they're going on and going on. And he stands up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. So Jesus acts like he doesn't even hear them. He wrote on the ground, verse 6, by the way, uh, the only time we have a record of Jesus writing anything, and it was probably gone within a matter of moments after him writing it, would have been really interesting to see what he wrote. I'd be really interested to see that. I'd be interested in his his, um, penmanship, uh, you know, just the way my mind works. He's writing something on the ground, and when he continued, they, they kept asking and asking and asking, He raises himself up, asks the question. Now, he raises it from a legal issue to a spiritual issue. He says, guys, you're asking this question, but none of you are fit to carry out the judgment. There's only one qualification for you to be her executioner. You have to be anamartatos. You have to be without sin. One Greek word for two English words. Without sin. If you are without sin, as in, not just are you, have you been caught doing something wrong. No, no. To be without sin means you can't even have been tempted with the thought of doing something. So if you are completely anamortatos, um, I was going to say any more titles there. It's, it's just after Christmas. <laughs> anamortatos, if you are without sin, then you can kill her. And they're all convicted. They drop their stones and they go away one by one. And it finishes with Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here's my question. Is Jesus being light on sin? 
Is Jesus doing what the legal people thought that he would do and siding with his base support? Is, are they, is he taking the easy way out? And rather than killing someone, he's saying, oh, well, if they're not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. What's happening here? Number one, he's not being light on sin. In this phrase that he says, I think there is two things in play. Salvation and sanctification. And here's where I want to bring hope in again because I promise I haven't forgotten what I'm supposed to be talking about. Okay? Uh, Remember, this is about showing us what kind of a saviour Jesus really is. Salvation is found in the words, neither do I condemn you. Sanctification is implied in the words, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Now, obviously, there had been some faith that she exhibited, some, some real true repentance f- uh, for him to be making that declaration, but then for him to go on and say, go and sin no more. Exactly what Paul said in, in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who have died in sin continue any longer in it? So, so let me close with this thought. The most expensive, most valuable autograph in the world Anyone want to have a guess at who it belongs to? Anyone? No? William Shakespeare. I'm sure you're always going to say that. I mean, you're all very smart. William Shakespeare, they reckon there's only six copies of it. And to own a copy of William Shakespeare's autograph um, or signature is worth about $5 million. Uh, If you were to find one with uh, belonging to a play or, or you know to a piece that he actually wrote himself it could be worth 50 million dollars so um, I don't have one uh, but I'm just because when I found that out I went and looked but think of the words that Jesus is writing on the ground what did he write we're not told he either wrote maybe their names um, maybe a sin that each of them had committed um, maybe you know about uh, the um, mistress that one of the men didn't think anyone else knew about or I don't know, maybe he wrote a website that one of the guys kept going to. I don't know. I don't know what he was writing about. He, he maybe traced the name out or did something or uh, a tax form that maybe some of them were cheating on. But something that they saw, something that happened there made them drop everything and just go, I just remembered well, my, my wife needs me home or I, I need to be home from a dinner or whatever happened to be and they run but how precious and how valuable for that woman to have Jesus right on the ground and pardon her and say go and sin no more I'm giving you a clean start to us Jesus who will write your name in his book of life that writing that signature is the most valuable signature you could ever have for him to have your name written on his books and say, he is mine, she is mine, they belong to me, they are forgiven, they are redeemed, they are my child. It is the most precious thing, the most valuable thing. He knows exactly what you're like. He knows exactly what I'm like. He knows the sins. He knows every bad thing, every bad motive, every bad thought. But he is willing to say to you and to I and to each of us, but I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And in that there is great, great hope. She knew that she was guilty. She had been caught in the act. So so let's not pretend that she was framed. 
she may well have been um, set up, but she was guilty. She'd been caught in the act, and she knew that she should be condemned. She knew the trap they were setting for Jesus. She was expecting to die that morning. But she was not condemned. The world will love to throw your faults back in your face. The devil loves for you to throw your own hang-ups in your own face every time you look in the mirror and to depreciate your value, to say that you're not worth it or you're ugly or you're this or you're that. Uh, And the treasured conference that the girls put on over the last two nights was working hard to let girls realize that it is wrong to lie to yourself and to focus on the perceived imperfections of your life. You're not unlovable. You're not a loser. Your past does not define you. Your mistakes do not follow you. Not with Christ. Not with Christ. You want to know what kind of a saviour Jesus is? Do you want to know what kind of a saviour he really is? He says, I do not condemn you. Here's a clean slate. Go again. God knows when to speak up. When the world is so keen to kick you when you are down and destroy you because you're not perfect in their eyes, listen to him as he says these words again. I do not condemn you. Now go start again. And it is the most freeing thing in the world. The most freeing thing in the world to know that I have made my fair share of mistakes. I have made my fair share of screw-ups of all sorts on all different shapes and sizes and magnitudes. Some that you may know about and some that hopefully you will never know about. And every time I look in the mirror and I'm reminded about how imperfect I am and how undeserving of a clean start I am or how undeserving of God's forgiveness I am or how undeserving of God's love I am, I am reminded that because of who my Savior is, he says, no, 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 because you're mine, because of the price that was paid on the cross, because of Calvary, because of the love that I have for you, I do not condemn you. In Romans, it says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What an amazing thing to put your hope in. And something that I think I'm becoming more conscious of, partly because of the job, but in our society generally, there has been such a sharp increase in anxiety and stress and pressure and depression and my limited understanding of it seems to stem from this inability this inability to stop condemning ourselves and the way we are living our lives seems to press down in on us so hard. We try to do so much. We try to be so perfect. We try to have this Facebook, Instagram filtered life that no one has, but we try to aspire to it. And then we beat ourselves up because, you know, our 
real life doesn't match someone's highlight reel and and it just starts putting this pressure and it cramps down and we beat ourselves up and we beat ourselves up and we beat ourselves up. But when we come to God, there's this wonderful, beautiful hope that we have that he says, look, I have forgiven you. I'm not going to bring these things up. I don't want to talk about your sin. I don't want to talk about your past. I don't want to talk about these things because I've forgotten about them. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. God is interested in bringing us forward. We're singing Psalm 23. He leads me. He's taking us forward. There is no condemnation in Jesus. And I am sure there are people in this room who are guilty of beating themselves up for things that are long gone in the past. Christ isn't holding them against you. The slate has been wiped clean. Give yourself the freedom to do the same. That's the power of the gospel. No more condemnation. Are we perfect? Really, no. We're not. But God isn't interested in throwing our mistakes into our face. He will use our trials. He will use, you know, like like any parent, will, will try and take their child and teach them and instruct them and help them to grow. But we don't go down the list at bedtime with our kids saying, right, so here's how you messed up today. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. Good night. Oh, by the way, I love you. No, that's not how we work. So it is with God. If you truly believe the gospel, if you truly understand what it means to be forgiven, then you let go. You let go. God has let go. And there's a wonderful hope in that, isn't there? Next time you feel that weight crushing down, the next time you feel that, that stranglehold that life has around our throats, go back to this woman who felt every inch of her imperfection, who felt completely deserving of her condemnation from everyone else she was caught she was guilty there was no talking herself out but to hear Jesus speak up and say but I don't condemn you instead I'm going to give you a clean start I'm going to give you the chance to start again what wonderful hope there is in that let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for what it means to be completely forgiven. To have let go completely of the past and to be moving forward into a new thing. Lord, I would never claim to be perfect still. 
But I thank you, Lord, that my past is being left in the past. You're not going to throw it in my face every time I make a mistake. But rather I find forgiveness and mercy and grace and the chance to start again. Lord, for each and every Christian in here tonight, move in a strong way, Lord, to remind each and every one of the power of your forgiveness, Lord. That there is no sin, past, present, or future that is more powerful than the cross. And Lord, perhaps for those who are not saved, Lord, may they perhaps see for the first time the hope that can be found in you. That this is a new life. This is a new way of living. It starts with repentance. And ends with no condemnation and a new hope for what lies ahead. And so, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Folks, there's tea and coffee.